As the nation prepares to mark the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., it does so in the wake of the anniversary of the storming of the nation's capital. Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Don Rush. The images still hang in the air with the sight of the Confederate flag inside the Capitol building. All this comes as voter rights have come under attack with over 400 bills introduced in states around the country. On the phone with us this morning is Carl Snowden. He's with the Caucus of African American Leaders. Welcome to the program. Thank you so very much, sir. Thank you for the invitation. So let me just uh, ask you, where do you think this nation is, given what we saw, obviously, a year ago, but even since then, um, particularly this emphasis on what seems to be at least a rise in white supremacy? I'm I'm not sure it's so much a rise as it is um, people beginning to focus. The technology now allows us to see things that we had not previously seen. But I think where we are in the nation is at a crossroads. We have to make a decision what kind of nation we want to be. And there are forces, very reactionary forces, that are reemerging, that are suggesting that it's time for the nation to go backwards. And those of us who believe that we're moving in the right direction, we have to be prepared to take them on. And they have chosen these reactionary forces to use race as the polarizing issue to divide people. As you will recall, during the era of Martin Luther King Jr., race played a central role in everything in the nation at that time, and we're back at this time again. And so the battles that Dr. King fought for, brotherhood, racial equality, social justice, are on the forefront again. And we need to determine as a nation whether we're prepared to be on the right side of history. When you saw that Confederate flag inside the the Capitol building, something that did not even occur during the Civil War, what was your own reaction? What were your thoughts about that? It was a wake-up call. A, a very important wake-up call. There is a faction. There always have been. Uh, I'm old enough to know that, but the John Birch Society, I know about White Citizens Council. There's always been this element in the American body politic um, that has existed. And what that breaching of the Capitol did was remind us that element is still very much alive. Again, uh, when we go back and look at the wisdom that Dr. King and Malcolm and others left us, it is to be able to be vigilant. We cannot assume that uh, racism has been eradicated in this country because we've been able to make some progress as it relates to electing an African-American president, or in this case, a vice president who happened to be African-American. We've got to realize that there is a reactionary force. It's a right-wing force. It's always been in existence. And one of the, one of the troubling things I've witnessed is a new polling data that says for the first time, 40% of uh, Republicans believe that violence is okay. That is very, very troubling and something we have to pay attention to. Do you think, for instance, the the fact that we did have our first African-American president, as you point out, obviously now a vice president, that that brought a lot of this to the surface? Because there was, even during the period of the uh, the Tea Party movement, there was that element to it as well. And, of course, we saw uh, former President um, Donald Trump in his run-up to the presidency, even early on, talking about birtherism, that all those elements began to come to the surface once there was this recognition that perhaps something was changing because we had, for instance, an African-American president. That's true. I mean, I think, uh, again, I'm one who studies American history. I'm, I'm very well aware of how race has always been used as a, as a way of getting some politicians to office. Uh, there are people who will surely remember 
when Ronald Reagan first announced his presidency, he did it in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the place where civil rights uh, activists had been murdered, uh, these symbolic images that were being sent. So we know that race can and have been used effectively in our society. Those who will remember George Bush when he ran, the first George Bush when he ran for president, uh, one of the things he used effectively was what was called the Willie Horton ad that appealed directly to race, had a black man who allegedly had uh, raped a white woman, and that was used in a campaign ad, successfully, I might add. So race has always been a factor in the American body politic. The question is not uh, whether racism exists. The question is what we as a nation will do about it. And now we're at this crossroads. President Joe Biden, when he was running for the presidency, said that this race was about the soul of America. Well, in many ways, it is about the soul of America. And that's why this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday is so important. It's an opportunity for people of goodwill to recommit themselves to the dream that Dr. King had, which was of the beloved community, a community that was all-inclusive, all-loving, and one that put more emphasis on peace than it did race. I want to follow up on one piece of this, which is that in the past, and particularly the examples that you mentioned, they were very subtle in, in nature, really, uh, as compared to what we're now seeing in terms of, obviously, neo-Nazis who come out in force. Um, we've seen the uh, Jews will not replace us, uh, rise of anti-Semitism, particularly. Um, it's something that you would not necessarily see in polite Republican society in the past. That is true. That is true. But again, uh, at, at, on the eve of Dr. King's death, uh, he said almost 50 years ago, we've got some difficult days ahead of us. He said on the eve of his assassination, dark days. And these are those dark days. But I'm also looking at something else. And there's no question they've had this right wing, very ugly, very evil presence. But also, I want to remind people that last year, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, and the whole world saw him being murdered, people of goodwill all around this nation and world responded to that. Uh, there were white people young people in particular that were marching who were saying Black Lives Matter. There was this incredible reaction to that racism. The reason George, uh, the reason why uh, Donald Trump is not in public office today, let us not forget, it was the fact that a majority of Americans rejected his presidency. His big lies about having won the election. Well, the reality is that he did not win the election. He lost the election. There were more people who wanted him out of office than wanted him in office. And then we saw what happened when people of goodwill get mobilized and energized and organized. What happened in Georgia has to be considered a reaction to the racism. They said in Georgia, the state of Georgia, the state where Martin Luther King Jr. is buried in Atlanta, Georgia, that no black man would ever get elected to become U.S. senator. No Jew would get elected in Georgia, they said. But the masses of people came out in great numbers. And what we saw was more people of goodwill voting in the state of Georgia for change than those who would take us back. So I think we have to be uh, cautious. But I also think we need to realize the strength that we have when we come together. It's been proven over and over again that whenever good people of goodwill join hands, we make a change in America and in the world. And some of these changes are very recent. So while I think we need to be concerned, I think we need to not moan, but organize. 
What do you think accounts for that that change? I mean, there's obviously been the suggestion that there are demographic changes obviously taking place, but also seems to be some values changes as well, particularly as you get uh, the older people passing away and there are younger people in their stead. What what dynamics do you see producing this kind of positive change? Well, let me give you um, two examples of why we are first where we are, and then secondly, why I'm optimistic we're going in the right direction eventually. The reason I think that there's a lot of bigotry that still exists in America and racism and anti-Semitism um, and, and homophobia is because of ignorance. Now, if you ask the average person who's a, uh, who has knowledge of American history this following question, did they know that Richard Mentor Johnson, who was the ninth vice president of the United States of America, the ninth vice president of the United States of America, who served under Martin Van Buren, that he, Vice President Richard Minto Johnson, wife was black and he had two black daughters, people would be stunned. They would absolutely not believe that. But if one was to Google Richard Minto Johnson, look at his wife, they'd find her name was Julie Chan, and they had two daughters who were black. And it was because of the fact that they were black that Martin Van Buren lost the election. But that part of history has been lost. Most people have no idea that that occurred. In more recent times, if you ask people was Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated, of course they said he was. But when you ask them, did they know that his mother was a victim of assassination? She was assassinated six years later in 1974. The vast majority of people would find that shocking information. They just don't know. So part of what keeps this racism going, and the reason why they've raised the issue of critical race theory, because they know that the more you enlighten people to the true history of American history, the more willing they will become to confront the racism that has existed in our society. The reason I'm so optimistic, or remain to be optimistic, and I think we're going in the right direction, because we are changing. America is changing. You know, uh, by the year 2040, this is going to be majority nation, people of color. That's, that's a fact. That's what's going to happen. And it's frightening some people. And on the other hand, it's embraced other people being embraced by the changes. We have an experiment that's been going on for more than 200 years, and that is a multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, society. Uh, this experiment in, the, in what they refer to as the perfect uh, union uh, the effort to make a more perfect union is true. I've had the pleasure of traveling around the world, and there's no country like America. We're very diverse as a nation. And this experiment we call democracy, as Ben Franklin said, it's great. The question is, can we hold on to it? And that's where we are right now. Well, one other question I have as we go forward is that we mentioned a moment ago at the opening that we have some, I guess it's 440 uh, voter suppression bills that have been introduced, uh, Texas, Georgia, Florida, amongst others, um, an effort uh, perhaps even for state legislatures to overturn uh, primary uh, elections or the elections um, for electors to the Electoral College. We saw certainly an effort in uh, 2021 to overturn uh, some of these uh, votes in some of these key states. Uh, is it possible we may be looking at a country that has is being really ruled by a minority uh, through these various mechanisms? Yes. I mean, there's no question that 
In fact, again, for those who grow or delve into American history, that's been true. I mean, the truth of the matter is that uh, minority rule is not new to this nation. I mean, I've got to remind people that women didn't have the right to vote until 1920. My mother was born when women didn't have the right to vote. She recently died at the age of 104. Women didn't get the right to vote until 1920. Our people forgot that African-American men who could vote starting in 1870, women never had the right to exercise that right to vote until we got the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. Young people, people forget young people, which constitute a large slice of America, did not win the right to vote until after the Vietnam War. So we've had long periods of American history where the majority of people, based on their race, their gender, their age, couldn't vote. So it's not a new phenomenon if you understand American history. So what we need to do is confront our true history, let people know that there is this, this scheme to suppress the vote, but it's not new. Tell me the difference between what's happening today and what was happening when, for black voters, they had to go and count how many bubbles was in a, was in a soapbox. It was very much a system that was in place that was racist, that denied people the right to vote. Again, I come back to Dr. King, who kept warning us over and over again that we have to be vigilant. This is not a new struggle. This is an ongoing struggle, and we have to be willing to confront it. One of the achievements of King, uh, as well as obviously Lyndon Johnson, but King was, of course, the Voting Rights Act uh, in 1964. And one of the things that, that really struck me, or 65, one of the things that really struck me was the fact that we now have um, a situation where there seems to be a recognition that a lot of these things are going on in terms of how votes are being restricted. But do you think the administration or Democrats are doing enough? Um, we have it in the Senate, of course, one or two um, Democratic senators who say they don't want to do away with the filibuster have been certainly reluctant. Um, what do you make of the effort? I mean, are they alarmed enough in order to deal with these uh, kinds of restrictive laws? Short answer is no, they're not alarmed enough. But again, I, I come back to history. Most people think the Voting Rights Act just happened by happenstance or coincidence or by accident. It did not. In 1964, after the civil rights law was passed, a group of African-American activists, including Martin Luther King Jr., went to meet with Lyndon Johnson. At the time, Lyndon Johnson did not favor a voting rights act. He felt that the country had done this huge uh, accomplishment by getting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. So he said something to Dr. King that we must remember. Lyndon Johnson said to Dr. King, if you want us to do the right thing, make us do it. And it was the fact that millions of people began to pressure the Congress. That's how we got the Voting Rights Act. It didn't come because of the leadership from the White House. It came from because people on the streets were putting the pressure on the U.S. Senate and the Congress uh, and President Johnson that it came into being. So, again, I think we have to take the advice of former President Johnson. We've got to make people do the right thing. And that's not unusual in American history. Uh, oftentimes, the right thing is done because the right number of people are at the right place at the right time raising the right issue and forcing, forcing the country to go in the right direction. What you, will recall, yeah. go ahead. you will recall, you will recall that 
the United States government's official policy was neutrality or what they call constructive engagement with South Africa. The Republicans and those who were in power is no one to change foreign policies related to South Africa. It was an anti-apartheid movement in the streets that led to the changes. And all I'm pointing out is that whenever you look at the progress of the made in this nation, it's a mistake to assume that it came from the Congress or it came from the presidency. It has always come from people's goodwill energizing the base and making government do what it's supposed to do. I want to, by the way, turn just a moment to uh, the critical race theory, because the thing that struck me is that where all of these things seem to sort of converge uh, is in the school room, yes. in the school, in the classroom. What do you make of how one tries to deal with that? Because it's probably, it seems to me, one of the most sensitive areas, for particularly for parents, but for a lot of people when they talk about their children. We've already obviously seen it with the concept of masks and vaccinations and so on, but certainly race is also an, an issue. How do you see the schools grappling with this um, with the issue of race, and, and how do we move beyond some of the vitriol that we've seen, certainly at some of the school boards? Not without difficulty. I mean, it's not going to be easy because the forces that are trying to use this as a, you know, a divisive issue are going to do everything they can to make it divisive. You've heard, undoubtedly, where people say they don't want critical race theory to be taught because they don't want white children to feel uncomfortable. But we've got to get people to understand that truth does make people feel uncomfortable. Education, the reason why we have what's called academic freedom is because you want to be able to discuss issues. I mean, people have to be able to confront the history of their nation. It was uh, James Baldwin who correctly noted that not everything faced can be changed, but nothing that's not faced will not be changed. And we've got to face the fact that in America, We've had a curriculum that never told the true story of American history. The fact of the matter is that uh, Columbus didn't discover America. That's a fact. It's no way getting around that. And so I think that what we have to do is be willing to go into these discussions, and they are going to be difficult discussions, both at the local and national level, talking about, as a nation, where do we want to go from here? How do you talk about the Holocaust and that not be uncomfortable? How do you talk about Native Americans who some tribes genocide was committed against and it not be uncomfortable, or slavery, or the fact that in American history, we're child labor, sweatshops. These things are uncomfortable in terms of the Japanese Americans in 1941. How do you tell that without people being uncomfortable? So I take the argument, I take the point of view that um, the fact that people are uncomfortable is a good thing because we need to be uncomfortable with some of the history that we've had in this nation. Let me say this, so follow-up, how do you deal with that in classroom when there will be white students who are young, they don't have a lot of history behind them, um, and they feel as if somehow they're being held responsible or that they should feel bad or whatever reaction they might have, no matter how it's presented. I mean, how do you cross that divide so that people understand that past wrongs have to be dealt with, current wrongs have to be dealt with, that their position in society has to be recognized at the same time without, say, them feeling guilty about it. I mean, I think that's one of the, the key issues when I hear a lot of uh, some of the white folks, white parents and so on, um, talk about this. They feel as if somehow 
they're being put upon, I guess, um, as not as a not as an opportunity to change, but rather as a something to be blamed, I guess. Right. No, I understand that, and I, yeah. part of my part of my career, part of my background, is um, <clears throat> I'm an, I was a professor at a local community college as well as a, a university, and so I understand that. I understand it, it comes down to the ability to be able to convey messages to people. It is uh, it is true that it is a challenge, but but that's what life is about is these challenges. So I think the way we get this done, you sit down with parents who have every right to be concerned about what's going to happen to their children, how they feel, and you develop a curriculum that continues to focus on truth, because truth must be part of the curriculum, but it's a way of approaching it where people can feel comfortable. I've met white people who initially have the reaction that you uh, described that whites you've run into have had the reaction. But when you take a few moments and begin to share with them history that they've lived through, but they've never thought about it, they begin to re-examine their own behavior. You know, as I said to you earlier in this conversation, when I shared with, with white people who've lived in America, who went on to get their college degrees, living comfortable lives, that there had been an African-American woman who was the vice president's wife and during Martin Van Buren era, they didn't know that. And they want to know how could that happen and they not be aware of that. And so I think it's important that we be able to teach this history in a manner that people can both appreciate and understand. One final example, you take people who make the following statement, that Donald Trump was the first president of the United States to put children in cages. They're referring to the whole issue of the border kids, kids on the border. Well, that's just not true. Donald Trump was not the first president to do that. And when you tell people that uh, there were presidents who were responsible for children being put in cages uh, under Democrats, just as it was true that they did it on the Republicans, and you point out to them that this is part of American history, it's a little bit more easy to accept because it doesn't come across as partisan or liberal or even conservative. It comes across as this is our history, and we must make sure that this never happens again. I want to turn to police abuse. Um, we, of course, as you pointed out a moment ago, we had George Floyd, the uh, police officer there, was convicted. Uh, we also had... Um, a situation with the uh, three convictions in the Ahmaud Arbery case. Uh, those were civilians, of course, um, but convicted for that as well. Where do you see us in terms of uh, police abuse dealing with it? We obviously had the incident in Ocean City as well. Um, in terms of trying to get at this, or is it just simply that we're becoming more aware of it? Because obviously we have a lot of videos now which have been essential to some of these prosecutions. Um, where do you see us with this? Well, first of all, uh, the Maryland General Assembly is to be given great uh, kudos for the fact that they recognize that we have a problem here in the state of Maryland and passed the most sweeping police reform legislation in the history of this state. Um, and I think most police departments, including Ocean City, are grappling with the fact that there's a changing environment. I had a conversation with the police chief in Ocean City when that melee took place. And one of the things he said to me was that had those young men who were 17 and 18 years of age merely obeyed a lawful order, 
we wouldn't have had this particular problem. And when I responded to him, what, what, what about George Floyd? He said, what are you talking about? And here's what I said to him. Those young boys that got arrested were 17 and 18, which means that they were born probably in 2003-2004. Think of what they've experienced in their life. If you were born in 2004 and you're a young African-American person, you've seen in your lifetime, Kervon Martin, 17 years old, you've seen a 16-year-old kid in Chicago named McDonald who was killed, an 18-year-old boy, young 18-year-old man named Michael Brown who was killed in Ferguson. You saw a young man named Freddie Gray who was 26 years old get killed. You saw Antoine Black, who's from Greensboro, who was only 19 years old, die. You've looked at people, you've seen people who look like you, who are within your age range, dying. And for you to think that that's not going to have a reaction to people who are in that age group is foolish. The fact of the matter is, George Floyd was complying. He was following a lawful order. Just because you follow a lawful order does not mean you will not have a bad encounter with police. And so I think we really have to have this dialogue and make sure that folks understand that this generation of young people that's coming, their experiences with police are far different than experiences of their fathers and their forefathers. And they're not going to be as willing to take the abuse as so many of us were willing to do. As you look ahead, um, what's your sense about where this country is going? Um, obviously, as we said a moment ago, it is clearly it's changing over time, demographics, values, and so on. Um, but we still have the situation where we have the, a government and a structure that uh, often favors the minority. In fact, in some people would argue that Madison, that was Madison's aim was to uh, ratchet in the, the majority, as it were. What, what, where do you see ourselves going, and, and, and how long do you think it's going to take to overcome some of these obstacles, these structural obstacles that are sitting in front of us? First, I'm very impressed, i got to tell you, with your understanding of history, the way the government is structured. I can tell by your questions. You've given some serious thoughts to these questions, and I just thank you for that. Um, my analysis and my thinking is, as we move forward, the reason I'm so optimistic is, again, I credit my mother, who I told you lived to be 104 years old. She died last year. And my mother would always tell me something that I've never forgotten. Uh, my mother would get very angry with people who said, nothing's changed in America. America is as racist as it used to be. And my mother said, are you kidding? <laughs> and my mother would share with me her real-life experiences. My mother lived more than a century. And so when I look back at America and I look at where we are today, I remain optimistic. Now, here's an example of something that just happened um, in a relatively short period of time. And the vast majority of Americans, regardless of their religion, their race, uh, <clears throat> their economic status, have accepted it. It's like it's no big deal. When the United States Supreme Court affirmed marriage equality, uh, allowing people of the same sex to marry, I thought there'd be a huge backlash in this country. But that's not what happened in America. That is such a huge, major change in America. I mean, to me, it's just a major change. That happened in my lifetime. There were people when I was growing up said that Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday would never be a holiday. It took 25 years, but it became a holiday. 
There were people who told me Nelson Mandela would die in Robbins Island in South Africa. He walks out to the prison and becomes president of that country. I just think that sometimes we have to slow down, look at the tremendous progress that we've made in this nation. We've been speaking with Carl Snowden. He's with the Caucus of African-American Leaders. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning. Thank you so very much, sir. And thank you again for the opportunity to participate. This has been Delmarva Today. I'm Don Rush. Thanks for listening.